I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Rick Miller. He's author of Be Chief, It's a Choice, Not a Title. Rick Miller is an unconventional turnaround specialist, a servant leader, and a go-to chief. Conventional wisdom has long defined chiefs as rulers of people, those who are successful and hold the most power. In business and society, we view chiefs as special and selectively chosen, a title reserved for those at the top of an organization. But what if conventional wisdom is wrong? This is what Rick, this is what his book is about, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Rick. Uh, It's great to be on, Catherine. Thank you. So what if this conventional wisdom is wrong? Uh, be chief, it's the choice, it's not a title. What's the key message here? What are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about is just that. It's the conventional belief that chiefs have the only power that matters. Um, you know, the, the, key, the key element here is that power has been defined by people as things like authority and control, and those have traditionally come from individuals who had positions of power or titles. And there was an era of supremacy, honestly. If you think about how organizations run, generally you have to go up the, up the ladder to get decisions made, supposedly because the people at the top are smarter or they have more knowledge. And, and that's kind of old thinking, uh, to be honest, Catherine. I think the current thinking about power is power is more about energy and influence and clarity and confidence an impact that, frankly, those five things all of us have. And I, uh, in the book, spend a lot of time talking about organizations ranging from startups to multinationals, where we found a way to make sure that everybody understands that they are powerful, that they're at their best when they're powerful, and how do you bring out that power so that uh, traditionally they use terms like employee engagement. I just use the term, we'd like everyone to be all in when they show up at work. Well, what about this? I want to interrupt you a second, Rick, because I'm listening to you and you're talking in terms of a an organization or. uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah. But what about I mean, I'm thinking about the current climate. You're talking about none of us. We're we're all chiefs. We all have the power to be a chief, uh, to bring sort of what we considered what chiefs bring to an organization. But what about today in, in terms of politics? We've sort of gone the opposite direction, it seems to me, in terms of there's one one chief and and very few little chiefs running around who have any input. Um, that's my question. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. There's no question that certainly you can point to uh, instances in government as well as in many organizations where someone at the top uh, chooses to exercise an old definition of power that I think is debilitating for many people in the organization. And uh, while I don't spend a lot of time in the political arena, I spend more time in the, in the for-profit and, and really in the not-profit area, work with colleges and, and educational institutions, where the, the opportunity is to allow everyone, as I said earlier, to bring, to bring their A-game. And I think there are choices that we all make about when we're willing to give up our, our core power, our, our confidence and our influence to others. And I think increasingly people are, uh, Catherine, not real interested in working in organizations 
where they're giving up their power or they're looking up the ladder, if you will, for decisions to be made. And I so think how does this work in an organization so that it's really positive for the organization, so th- that it's really creating growth, as you say. So it's not just one person, the CEO, and you've been the CEO, obviously. You've had a lot of experience. Um, so that it's not just that person at the top who's making all of these decisions, but who are energized by all of the people in the organization. They all have something to offer as, and I'm putting it in quotations, as chiefs. Um, let's talk about specifics, how that works. Uh, there's a number of things you can do if you do happen to have a, a managerial title, if you have people who on an org chart report to you. There are certainly things you can do to make sure that there is uh, open communication. And, and the term decentralization has been around, Catherine, for a long time, right? I mean, people have, have run organization in a decentralized way where things don't have to go to headquarters to make decisions. And, and, and so it's not a brand new concept. I think nowadays there uh, many of the successful organizations, uh, whether they are uh, for-profit or non-profit, are finding ways to get the innovation engine, which are the people, kind of involved at all levels. So there are things you can do uh, to, to uh, the traditional levers of, of communication and recognition and compensation. Uh, and that's kind of a top-down approach to try to get people to feel powerful. In the book, we talk about it, a new way of looking at it, which is not top-down, but kind of side to side, because what we show in the book is, is we share some research that indicates that anyone in an organization can influence everyone in an organization. The, the great research that's been, been out there for a while, but, uh, but we really put a bright light on it, says that when you introduce a, someone who's happy or positive into an organization, it affects those around him or her. So I don't. I, I advocate in the book that, that to be successful, certainly if you're in the front lines, for example, say you don't have any kind of chief title, you certainly will benefit if the people who are higher up in the organization get it and are trying to decentralize. However, if you're in an organization where, where decentralization is not the norm, you certainly have an opportunity to exercise your power as a frontline worker and independent of what's above you, have an impact, have influence, build confidence, you know, build energy, build clarity. And in the book, we provide a very simple uh, assessment tool uh, to do just that. Okay, let's talk about the assessment tool. How do you do it? Because you do say that being chief uh, is contagious, and I guess it's what you've been saying. It really creates this kind of energizing engagement, and, and, and it just it sort of spreads out. It's a it, it's a virus, a good virus. So how does that oh, work? it's a wonderful Specific, virus. Yeah. It's a wonderful virus, Catherine. This is the virus that you want. So how do we do it? In ter- give us a, I always like to have an example. Let's say you're sitting in an organization and you are at a meeting and there is someone who's the, the, the CEO um, and uh, of the company. Of, and and uh, how does that work in terms of you're the, or you view yourself as the sort of the low guy or gal on the, on the, uh, you know, in the meeting, and how do you become um, a chief? How do you get your ideas well, out there? Yeah, I think it gets to those those five elements that I mentioned earlier, and I'll just focus on one of them to give you a very concrete example. Um, and let's talk about confidence. And in the book, I talk about the link between confidence and values. So when you walk into a meeting, it doesn't matter whether where on the totem pole, if you will, you are, whether you have a chief title or you don't have a chief title. If you make the choice, and again, being a chief is about a choice, not a title. If you walk into any meeting, 
understanding your values, understanding what you as an individual stand for, then my belief is that you walk into that meeting with a power that matters. If you know what you stand for, if you spend some time thinking about your values, what are those things that you believe most strongly in that characterize who you are, right? They help you develop insight. I think that, that, that the confidence and the energy to put your opinions forth come from an inner strength, right? A, a, a kind of an energy and a confidence that you can generate from inside by making choices. In the book, uh, I give you a very clear example of how I believe that your self-understanding, which is the key to your energy, I mean, you can drink five-hour energy or have a, you know, five cups of coffee and you'll get one kind of energy. I think you and I would agree on that. But I'm talking about a different kind of energy. I'm talking about the energy of a confidence that comes from, and I say in the book, I believe there's five things you can do to increase your energy. I think you can choose to be more present. I think you can choose to be still at times, to to hear your own voice. I believe you can develop your own energy by being accepting of the situation as it is. Not that you don't want to change it, but be accepting of what is and don't fight what already is. You can lose a lot of energy by by just constantly saying, why did this happen? You want to understand it to go forward, but complaining about it can just sap your energy. I think we get energy when we're generous and when we're grateful for where we are. So, so the thing that I offer in the book, by the way, I should share with your listeners, the, the, the uh, assessment itself is free online. If you go to beingchief.com, you can take this assessment, take about three to five minutes to give yourself a numeric score for energy and influence, and clarity, and confidence, and impact. Very free. It's free. Totally free. And you'll get... Where do you think, Rick, where do they get people get stuck in your experience? Um, Where do you think most people, or is, uh, maybe there isn't an answer to this, but where most people tend to get stuck uh, in in terms of being, feeling present, being still, accepting, generous, etc.? Are there any places no, where we... It's a great yeah. question. It's a great question. And so to, to, to peel it back and then give you the specifically the answer, I think success where people are chief, really, Catherine, is when they connect what they do to who they are, right? That is the definition of a true chief. They connect what they do to who they are. Now, to answer your question directly, where do people get stuck? Many people are so focused on doing, they don't stop... To, to listen to the most important voice that they will ever hear, which is their own. Right? People are going a mile a minute, right? They're going in so many different directions. They're listening to the voices of well-intended spouses and, and, and relatives and coworkers and the media, which is constantly chirping at all of us in terms of what we should be or we should do and things like that. We don't take the time to slow down enough to develop our own voice so that we can listen to it when we make these choices. I think the answer to your question very directly is if people slowed down just a little bit and really found a way to be present, not worry if you're sitting at a meeting, what's going to happen the next day, the next week, the next month, or replay what happened a month ago or the meeting you just walked out of. The ability to be present and to be still are things that people get tripped up on because it's not reinforced in many organizations. I think that's the most direct way I can answer your great question. So people get caught up in the future, which hasn't happened, and in the past, which is over. <clears throat> and you really exactly need to be right. present. Yeah, being present. Uh, one of the things you talk about also is vulnerability. How does that come into play? 
Well, vulnerability, and again, I, I cite in the book the great work of Brene Brown uh, in her book, Daring Greatly. I've got a, in my book, there's I, I think I counted 20 to 25 references to great other books, uh, because I will give you just a, a side light, then I'll answer your question directly. There's a wonderful group of people who supply great leadership information, right? My book is not about the supply of great leadership information. It's about how to apply, not supply. So I go to a Brene Brown and I give an example of, boy, she supplied some incredibly wonderful information about, about vulnerability, and she brilliantly linked it to the courage to take action. Right? I mean, anything you do is not guaranteed success, but to, to be comfortable with the vulnerability when you take action, right? That's what Brene talked about so beautifully in her great book, Daring Greatly. What I do in my book is I take that wonderful concept and I give specific examples to the reader about how to apply it in situations. So vulnerability is key because it's all about courage. People think about vulnerability as weakness. Brene did such a wonderful job describing it as a strength that allows everyone to move ahead should they choose to embrace it. Yep. I think that's an excellent point. Actually, she has a TED Talk you can listen to. She was on the show a couple of years ago. Um, and oh, she's amazing. That- yeah, she is a and a social worker, of course. And um, did you just say, "Of course"? Is that where that came yeah, from? Catherine, I did. <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so vulnerability, and that is something I think, just in terms of our culture, we tend to, as you say, if we're vulnerable, that means that we're not on top of our gateway. There are all kinds of these connotations which really aren't true, but that we kind of buy right. into, I think, and it's not a good thing. We don't want to be vulnerable. We see it as weak, and we really have to change that definition. Or that, and by the way, that's what this book is all about, frankly. The words are powerful, and let's go power, to the power word. Yeah. And again, you know, we've got this view of power as a bad thing, right? Some people have power, and they abuse it, rather than we all have a power defined as energy, influence, clarity, confidence, and impact that we want to bring out in ourselves and bring it out in the people that are around us. Now, one of the things also that's mentioned is that you've learned a lot of lessons from a lot of different people, but not necessarily from CEOs of companies or big chiefs, but you learned one one of your lessons was learned from a six-year-old girl, Melissa, uh, who was... Yeah, talk to us about Melissa, because she obviously had a great influence on you and, and it's quite a story uh, who incredible. inspired you. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Yeah. One of I clearly one of my greatest teachers uh, was a six year old girl with cerebral palsy. Uh, I was at the time volunteering at a rehabilitation hospital and I was paired with a wonderful therapist who would get these amazing kids in a 100 degree heated pool to stretch their muscles. When they came into the pool, they were rigid and over you know, different therapy sessions, we would attempt with the water, working together, uh, to stretch their muscles to allow them to, to be healthier. And so I was volunteering uh, one particular period, uh, one day actually, when I first met Melissa, and I actually became aware of her when I was working in the pool with another uh, a young person, and I saw Melissa waiting patiently in her wheelchair at the side of the pool. And I was struck by how serene she was. She was just calm and kind of taking it all in. And I was also struck by the fact that everybody uh, on the staff seemed to come over and, and say hello to her. She obviously had 
Uh, this was my first day of volunteering, uh, and I was there for months, but this was my first day. Melissa had been there for a while. And, and the response that people had to her caught my attention. And then when we got her in the pool, when it was her turn, I, I was amazed at how hardworking, how focused she was. Um, she, was she, she, she had a goal. Uh, when we, when I started working with her with a therapist, her two fists were clenched and they were up by her shoulders. Her goal was to fully extend both arms, grab what I will refer to as a Nerf basketball that was floating in the pool, and drop it in a little net, like have a basketball set up in the pool, which you've seen before, I'm sure. And and she just wanted to score two points. That's what she wanted to do. That first day, we worked with her, and I think we moved her right arm probably two or three inches in a one-hour session. She was so tight. It took us six months for her to, to realize her dream. And over that time, I came to know an amazing individual who was hardworking, who was accepting of her situation, who was, she always said thank you after every session. She was very generous with her smile. She was very present. And if I think about what a, what, what, what a, a truly powerful chief is, a, ch- a powerful chief is someone who works hard, who serves others, who is accepting and generous and grateful and president, present, excuse me, and can be still. That definition I offered earlier of power, I got to tell you, Catherine, I mean, everything I came to understand power to be, Melissa reminded me that you don't need to be in business to be powerful. Uh, she was one of the most powerful people I've ever met. And, and actually, you know, looking to the book project, we just, I, I decided that uh, uh, all proceeds from the book are going to a, a wonderful organization in Austin, Texas called Sammy's House, which, are, which is totally focused on helping kids like Melissa, special kids with special needs. And the amazing thing about Sammy's House, I'll get back to Melissa in a minute, is that they take the approach at Sammy's House that these wonderful children, these special needs kids, have so much to teach in addition to so much to learn. So, Melissa, I... I you know, and I did my TED talk. You talked about Brene's. I did a TED talk, and and certainly highlighted Melissa in it as one of the most gifted teachers uh, I, I've ever met in terms of who she was, how she presented herself, and the inspiration that she was to everybody around her. I will tell you, at the end of the six month mark, when she put that ball through that net, I get goosebumps to this day because everybody in the in the uh, the pool area, you know, there's only three of us to pull the time. Uh, but there are other people who were watching because everybody knew she was getting close. And the noise and, 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 and the amazing outpouring of, of congratulations for Melissa, uh, it just spoke to someone who just led by example. That, to me, is a true chief. And Melissa, this little girl, this six-year-old little girl, this powerful chief, right? Where does she get that energy? Where does she, how does she get so goal driven? Let's backtrack a little because she's only six years old. And I, it, it, is it something that partly it's innate or there's something that her parents are doing, obviously, that are doing right? Um, where does that come from? I mean, how can we yeah, emulate I, Melissa? Yeah. Well, it's great. It's a great question. And again, this gets to the, to the essence of, of, of the book and the message, which is, I certainly believe that she was, she was certainly blessed in certain ways. You'd look at this, this six-year-old cerebral palsy and you'd say, is this little girl blessed? I mean, some would say just visually, wow, she's got too many challenges to be blessed. Uh, uh, you know, uh, single mom, 
Um, so was she blessed with a strong family infrastructure? No. Um, but she was blessed with, you know, certainly from an, uh, a nature perspective, she came in with, with certain assets, no question. Uh, but I think she made choices. I think, you know, she, she, she chose to say thank you separately to the therapist and to me at, after each session. So uh, you don't come out of the womb knowing how to say thank you. She made choices, right, to, 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 to be grateful. She made choices to sit patiently and wait her turn. So I think we can learn from Melissa. We don't all, you know, have her situation, that's for sure. But what she taught me was the choices that she made, I think, contributed in a great way to make her a chief. So we go back to the being still and present and accepting. Uh, I can't tell you that we ever sat down and said, I never asked Melissa, what are your values? What do you stand for? Frankly, I didn't need to. I, I could just tell by being with her what she stood for, at least a portion of it. And, and again, when we define power, I think we talk about, uh, you know, confidence and energy. I mean, when she got in that pool, I got to tell you, the energy and the focus that she had rivaled anybody I've ever met. And, and well, I, I'm just so grateful for that message. Well, as you're describing her, and I'm thinking, look at the impact that she had on you. And I'm sure, obviously, it's not just on you. I mean, to, I mean I'm mean, i listening to you and the energy in your voice and, and what you've done in, in terms of, you know, having had that experience with her. Uh, you have to, this is a little six-year-old girl uh, w- with enormous challenges to overcome. As you say, she makes choices. But there must be so many people who she whose lives she impacts besides you. Oh, um, no well, question. There's no question. And I, as they say, when I, I, I can still remember the noise reverberating. I mean, pools are generally, because of the acoustics, uh, you know, loud place. But that place exploded with, with claps and hoots and hollers when she, she impacted every member of that staff. And I get the, the messages to everybody. Um, you know, you can never, can never underestimate anyone that you meet. There's always so much more you don't know than you do. So, you know, again, whether you're translating this to an organization or your personal life or what it's like at your church or whatever else, everyone has an opportunity to make an incredible impact. And, and we're so quick to judge and, and we're so quick to, to, uh, to assume visually that we know what a situation is. Uh, Melissa just taught me such a wonderful lesson that, of the power, true power, that we all have, that we all have. We just have to do our best to bring it out. Yeah. And so this is, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, so how, when you actually, let's say you're bringing, uh, you want to bring this kind of power into an organization and make people understand that they all can be chiefs and, and, and can achieve, and maybe not what Melissa can achieve, but at least uh, they have choices. Uh, what kind of resistance do you meet? I mean, you, because as you said, we're cha- you're sort of changing the whole way of thinking about organizations. You know, you, you go into an organization with the chief or with the head person, whoever it is, uh, you must meet with some kind of resistance. Oh, of course you do. Of course you do. And I will, I will tell you that, uh, uh, you know, when I walk into an organization, um, and I'll give you a, a sp- specific example. Uh, I, was, I was very, very pleased to be the first, uh, quote-unquote, outsider uh, recruited uh, a number of years ago into AT&T uh, to run a big part of their business. They had never had an outsider come in, and uh, I connected with some of the senior leadership team, and they said, hey, we need a fundamental change. They were not doing well in the market. And I came in, and, and, I, and I came as you always do, into a group of people. Uh, I think at the time, there was 10,000 people in the organization that I had the privilege of leading. 
and you know, I was I was met with three groups of people, uh, and I and I applied, Catherine, you might like this. Uh, I called, I applied what I call the go test, because there's three groups of people in any organization, right? There's the go goes who want to go. You just have to figure out how you can help them because they already know where to go. You just need to get out of their way. Those are the go goes. They're great. It's about fifteen to twenty percent of any organization are go goes. Uh, in the middle, you've got the go buts. They want to go, but they just want to understand the compensation plan one more time. They want to go, but this, the strategy isn't as clear as what it needs to be for them to buy in. So your job as a leader is to remove the obstacles that are keeping them from being go-go's. And then the third group are called the no-go's. And they're wonderful people, but they're just in the wrong job or they're not buying into the mission. And the best thing you can do with them, to your point, there are always, always some number of people who just don't want to go. And it's not that they're bad people, but if they don't want to go, then you have the opportunity to help them get someplace where they do want to go. So it's a simple way of, of, uh, of thinking about an organization, but, but that's the way I look at it, whether it's a startup or a multinational like AT&T. There are people who don't want to go, but you have to figure out why they don't want to go. If, if they don't want to go because they don't understand something, then it's your opportunity to help them understand what they're lacking. If they understand everything they need to, they just don't want to be part of the part of the parade, then that's okay. Then they get to go find another parade. So Rick, that's, we a, have to, I hate to cut you off, but we have to say goodbye because we've reached the end of the half hour. And I want to make sure that people go out and buy your book uh, so that they can continue with this conversation, but they can get it on their own. Read the book, Be Chief. It's a choice, not a title. Uh, Rick Miller is the author. And you can also go to being beingchief.com for more information about Rick and, and about the book. It's really been great talking to you today. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Divorce or domestic family issues can take their toll not only on the adults who are party to it, but also to their children. Sometimes separation or divorce are far better solutions than staying around a toxic relationship. Now there's a show that listens and provides solutions. Listen for Reclaiming Your Life with host Don Christensen. In this program, we discuss family crisis issues which can happen to anyone. Divorce with dignity is possible, and working together can achieve wonderful results. Listen Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
Do you think about what you really want? Are you looking to change or perfect your environment, your value, your life? We can help. Tune in to Everyday News with the Blantons. Hosted by husband and wife team Mark and Dr. Latasha Blanton, our program will help you find the answers to make the changes in your life with inspiring guests that can help you find your sense of place in the world and how you view it. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Kathy Hertz, author of Beyond Resistance, Coping with the Stress of the Trump Era. Kathy describes herself as a card-carrying member of the resistance. She has extensive backgrounds in politics and government, as well as the entertainment industry. She's experienced and witnessed the enormous impact that unchecked negative internal voices and beliefs can have on lives. For this reason, she believed it was imperative to address the epidemic levels of distress and overwhelm following Donald Trump's election. Following years of political engagement and activism, Kathy now brings her diverse background, together with her life coaching skills, to partner with Donna Lippman and create a roadmap for surviving and thriving through these turbulent political times. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Nice to have you here. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and I guess for me the key word is stress, stressful. These are stressful times, divisive times. Uh, there, I mean, politically, we are in such turmoil. I don't have to do all the descriptions. So, okay, we're approaching the midterms. We're approaching in uh, the elections in November. Things are appear to be getting worse. Politicians, Americans, all of us stressed out. What do we do? You're a life coach, and you're here to help us. So... Beyond resistance, how do we cope with the stress of the Trump era? And you describe it as an essential guide. Mm, well, it's true. We are, many of us are feeling extremely overwhelmed and stressed by what's happening in this country right now. And um, we, overwhelm is probably the word to use. And we think that part of um, dealing with overwhelm is looking at where you're not taking care of yourself, where we call it being out of Donna and I, um, my co-author, describe integrity as where are you not honoring, listening to, taking care of yourself. So one of the first keys is to understand that there's an army of us out there. For those of us that are, are resisting, are activists, are trying to stay up with what's happening, um, are trying to get out there making phone calls, sending postcards, reading the news, going to rallies, campaigning, all of these different things. And we have to understand that we don't have to do it all. That we do, it's essential that we take care of ourselves right now and understand that Audre Lorde says that um, self-care is an act of political warfare. And if we are going to stay engaged we must make self-care a priority. So we, know, we have to look at our stress and look at our overwhelm and say, what changes do I need to make to put me back into a place of integrity with myself where I'm coping? Maybe I don't need to be getting 43 different pop-ups on my phone an hour telling me the next you know, piece of news. Maybe I don't need to... Um, 
be on Facebook complaining and talking about it all the time with people? Where can I make some adjustments in my life? And so the, the issue also is that many of us feel like if we don't know everything, that we're somehow not being good citizens, or um, we sometimes feel more in control when we feel like we have all the facts. But we have to let go of some of these beliefs and know there's, there, as I said, there's an army out there and we can do what we can do and we have to really get clearer on what works for us and what doesn't. Yeah, Kathy, I think one of the things is, and, and I just, one of the things you said resonates with me, um, it, 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 that, that sort of that feeling, I don't have enough information, I need more information, I go crazy thinking, do I have the right information, or is this, this inaccurate information, and if I don't have the right information, I'm sort of reiterating what you said, but uh, then I can't do anything, then I'm just, I'm, I, I, what can I do? And then I listen to my friends and, and family, and everybody talks about, uh, this is terrible, this is horrible, but nobody really, what's the call to action? What are we, what are you going to do about it? And as you say, you have to take care of yourself. And I think in the book, you really do talk about there are four really main or outstanding obstacles that keep us from being empowered politically for taking action in a positive way. But, but yeah, so let's talk about those. Sure. Um, you know, these are our obstacles. We call them the fatal four. And we see them, we talk a lot about them in our book, and we see them as um, sort of um, moment, dream killers, and not just in activism, but in life. Um, these concepts really apply to life in general. And so what are the four? What are the fatal four? Um, the first is... Um, your monkey chatter. So we all have this little voice in our heads constantly telling us um, why we shouldn't do something or, well, you're not good enough or it won't matter anyway or who do you think you are or um, you will, you know, there's, a, there's constantly this voice that's usually will come up with an idea or will have a plan or a dream and for a minute will be like, great, good to go, and then all of a sudden that voice starts in, telling us all the reasons that we can't. And we call that voice your monkey, and he's chattering in your ear all the time. And usually we, most of us have um, similar messages. You'll notice a pattern. And what we need to recognize is that this monkey chatter is not based in reality. It's based on old stories and experiences that we've had, and it's been a way to, um, it's been a defense mechanism that we've established to protect ourselves from pain or hurt in our past that we've carried through, but they're not, these, these messages are not relevant to us anymore. We somehow subconsciously believe they're protecting us, but really they're just keeping us stuck and not fulfilling and living our dreams. So what can you do? You can start to notice those messages. You can start to identify, oh, there's my monkey again telling me why I can't do this or I'm not good enough or I'm this. And you can say, okay, I recognize that this is coming from an old story that I've held on to or an experience and that it's keeping me stuck because somehow I perceive it as keeping me safe. But what's the cost? The cost is my, are my dreams. So in the political realm, you might think to yourself, 
who do I think to think I can go work on a campaign because I don't know what I'm doing. You're going to look, I'm going to look like an idiot. But we, you know, you have to recognize that we do need you, that this is just an old story, and you're stopping yourself from doing what you truly want to do. So that's monkey chatter. So monkey chatter, we're saying, it's kind of like we trying to protect ourselves we're trying to protect ourselves from of 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 failing uh like you say we feel like we're not capable of getting involved in the political arena we've never done it before uh who i think i am and we're sort of relating that to things in the past where maybe we felt we failed at it it's it's it it doesn't really make sense in the context that we're talking about and you have to recognize it i keep uh, I want to reiterate that because you do have to always be aware, I guess is what you're saying, of this monkey chatter or the monkey on your back. Um, yes, and, because yeah. the monkey really only can sabotage us if we believe him, right? Everybody has the monkey. That doesn't go away. It's the question of whether you're going to let him derail you. And, you know, it, it's not just negative. I mean, you may be afraid of failure, but you also may be afraid of success. You may be afraid of being seen as, you know, too big or too powerful and on some level not be prepared to handle that. And so you're protecting yourself from success. It can be a multitude of different things. But, yes, that's absolutely what it is. So the next one is you talk about comparison. Okay. and Yeah. All right. Well, you wanted to actually. I interrupted you. You were going to say, "So, what can we do about this?" No, no, no. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, we're so yeah. We're limited on time, believe it or not. Even though we have almost a half an hour, but still okay. Because I want to get to the second one. Well, that's what holds us holds us back. Comparison and judgment. What do we do? How does that affect us in our inability or the obstacle to be able to accomplish what we feel we should? or make a choice to accomplish and to do something and to become politically engaged. Comparison and judgment, how does that fit in? Well, that stops us dead in our tracks, right? The minute we're comparing ourselves to another, um, we are going to say, well, I can't be like blank, so why bother? Um, or, you know, sometimes we're, when we're constantly comparing ourselves to someone else or judging ourselves or others, we're, it's a losing battle. And sometimes you may come up, you know, on the, the plus side and say like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing a better job than them or whatever. But that's a very short-lived kind of boost. Um, the whole, uh, cycle of comparing and judging both others and yourself. And usually if we're doing one, we're doing the other. Um, it's, it's a losing battle. It really is. And if we can just stay centered in us and who we are and what we're doing and what we want and living our own authentic lives, we're in good shape. Comparison and judgment is a killer. That is a killer. I think that's probably, for me, the number one killer. Also, you make judgments about other people and you think that they can handle this better or, you know, let's take politics, for instance, he or she is a lawyer, they'd be a better person to handle this or, the, you know, and you don't really know about that person anyway. You don't have the information. And so you're basing your choices and your expectations and putting yourself down on something that doesn't even exist. Um, so absolutely, you nailed it right on the head. That's absolutely correct. Your assumptions are your own imagination and are rarely based in fact. 
So that's correct. Let's put that in the context of, because we haven't specifically been talking about uh, the, well, Donald Trump, uh, or even we can talk about the uh, nomination of the, of uh, Kavanaugh. How does how do these can maybe fit it into that context so we can really understand uh, even more? Yeah. So how to fit comparison and judgment into that context? Yeah, put that into the yes, exactly. Um. Well, I would say I would it would be harder for me to to relate it directly to either one of those two, but I could relate it very much to taking a stand to, into our activism. Right? Okay, that's I mean, a good example. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, let's say I have this idea that maybe I'd like to plan a, um, organize a group in my community where we can get together and plan some political, a- political activism together or write some postcards together or make calls together. And um, then I start to say, look at, I don't know, some major activists, the women who planned the Women's March, okay? And right, right there, I go from what I want to do, what I feel called to do, to measuring myself up against somebody who's in a completely different situation and saying, well, I'm not that, I'm not like them, I don't have what they have, so I better not do anything, right? We, t- we, we, we put ourselves down, right? And then we lose our, our momentum. And think of what's lost. Think of what could have been achieved if we let that stop us. So now all these women that were going to be empowered by what you were going to do um, lose that opportunity, so it's a very, you know, it's a very destructive um, tendency that many of us have. We do it to kind of often try to make ourselves, um, well, we do it as a defense mechanism. And we also, we, we go into it sometimes trying to make ourselves feel better, but then the fl- it flips on us because we, we do it all the time and then we, we find, you know, Oh, I'm going on too long. I'm going to stop there. No, but, I'm going to say, and yeah. Kathy, that's a great example because it really brings to mind, I'm thinking about uh, Michael Bloomberg, for instance, who has been saying all along, uh, who, you know, mayor of New York City for three three terms, and, and Michael Bloomberg has always said, take a look at your communities, take a look at your towns, become active with your elections that have to do with mayors and town supervisors. You don't have to necessarily take a look at what you're going to do for the, the presidential election, but there are so, you know, you, you, which is the example you're using, you want to do something, gather a group of women to, to become active in your own community. You don't have to take on the whole uh, Me Too mo- movement. And it's it sort of, it sort of reminded me of the same kind of thing. Um, all to be able to to do that and and not which is the next thing not make excuses um that we have the choices and we can do that and we can do exactly as you're saying and he sort of describes that in in terms in, in terms of politics which uh, is is similar to what you're saying absolutely we we tend to tell ourselves that what we have to offer isn't enough um and so when we we stop we don't do anything and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, every little thing that someone has to offer is an enormous piece of the whole. And so, um, 
you know, I, I have done a lot of work with refugees, and I've been um, to Greece and helped refugees getting off of dinghies on the shores of Lesbos. And, you know, you can't, while it may seem like a small thing, handing a mother who just got off a harrowing journey of a dinghy, you know, on a dinghy with her child fleeing horror, handing her a, a cracker may seem like the smallest, smallest thing. But I can assure you that for that woman in that moment, that is a life-changing act. And we now that's, you know, just one example. But every action we take, as small as it is, it matters. The only thing that's too small to do is nothing. So I really uh, um, implore people to not believe that what they have to offer is not enough because it is and we need everybody right now yeah i mean that's a great example and you also i I think i'm quoting you when you say volunteerism is activism and that's a great example that you just gave but and and we have to keep that in mind volunteerism is activism and yes yeah that's helpful now because you're standing, you're, when you volunteer, you're saying, this matters to me, I'm taking a stand. I'm doing something. And right? you've done so much. I don't know if I gave you, uh, you know, in terms of, in the beginning, your bio, but you are a life coach. Uh, you've done so, you've worked in the Bush administration, Clinton administration, assistant, to, uh, I'm sort of bringing this in because uh, you, you, you practice what you preach, I guess is what I'm saying, or what we've been talking about. Uh, assistant to the deputy. Well, yeah, go ahead. Um, you know what? I wasn't always like that, Catherine. And these concepts that we're talking about today changed my life. The the, the a lot of what we write about in the book. Um, these concepts, understanding that monkey mind, that that monkey chatter that was telling me, who do I think I am? I can't do that all the reasons why I couldn't, right? All the ex- And we haven't talked about excuses, but all the excuses I made to keep myself safe and protected and understanding these things really like opened the curtains and let me see what I could do in the world. And I, I, you know, I don't let those things stop me anymore. They're life-changing. Well, yeah, well, you obviously so. haven't let those things stop. You have really an extensive background of working and volunteerism, and I have paragraphs here actually about you. But I want to get to the self-righteousness because we don't have a lot of time left. And before we went on the air, you said self-righteousness is one of the one of your main issues or one of the main things that you think or you believe keep us from acting and from doing what we need to do. And our unwillingness to consider other viewpoints. And in this political climate, I think that that's, that's right. That is really where it's at. I mean, it's very difficult to have uh, conversations with people who feel differently than you do uh, in this political climate. Yes, it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost become um, contempt, like, we don't just disagree anymore, it's contempt. And this um, self-righteousness, the belief that your opinions or views are the only ones that are at all worth considering um, and shutting down any other viewpoint is keeping us... And it, now, my 
Donna, my co-author, and I, you know, we laughed when we were writing this chapter because we struggle mightily with this, uh, you know, still. So in our book, we say, look, we are really working on this ourselves <laughs> still, So, but we're just going to share with you what we know, right? And what we know is that self-righteousness on some level comes from a human need to be right, right, and a, and, and a fear that if perhaps we open ourselves up to another viewpoint, even just to listen, that somehow our worldview is going to be, you know, come crashing down in some way or something like that. So we hold on and we are, you know, defending and, and you know, stomping our foot and saying this is the only thing, completely unwilling to even have a conversation but or 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 arguing with somebody or you know but when we do this we are cutting off now we're, i'm not saying you have to agree with them or or take on their point of view but to stand in self righteousness where you're unwilling to even engage or consider another point of view is only deepening the chasm that's already existing and it cuts you off from connection with people from relationships and when you're with somebody who's acting in a self-righteous manner how do you perceive that person is that somebody that you you do you do you feel heard do you feel seen do you want to continue to engage with this person so at this point in our in our country's history i think it would do us all well to be aware of self-righteousness and to try to just put it aside for a moment and listen just listen well, as you're describing it, it sounds, obviously, it sounds like a good choice to make. It's so difficult to do. I think I'm agreeing with it you. It is. Yeah, I think, and I, I, I know myself, I get very self-righteous, and I try not to do that, because I do want to hear whatever, and obviously, I talk to a lot of people on uh, on, on the radio, but it, it in personal situations, if you're having, and I say debate, start debating you know the political issues and it just gets into this a debate and it's it's really not people sitting and listening to what what another person has to say it gets very very emotional um do you have examples that we could so that for us about how to stop that when it happens when you begin you know when you're talking to someone who totally has a, a 180 viewpoints you're politically let's say what do you do how do you really specifically not do that not get engaged in a, um, in a battle. I would say to acknowledge to yourself that you're not in it at that moment to prove them wrong or to prove yourself right, but that the goal is connection. The goal is to listen in some way, and that even if they're saying things that make absolutely no sense to you or that you have a zillion facts to refute what they're saying, that that's not the purpose of the conversation at that moment, and that you're just going to listen, right? And then maybe when they're done speaking, you might want to say something or, um, you know, to just be aware of how you're communicating and to, to be careful of that need to be right and to prove that you're right. That You know, we're not going to change any, you know, Trump supporters' minds. We're just not. So you can talk till you're blue in the face and end up completely stressed out and have changed nothing, or you can just listen and learn and, and get a different perspective um, 
and then go volunteer for a campaign and do what you can do to actually change something because we're not going to change minds. We're really not, I don't believe. One of the things that I do try to do in those kinds of situations, which fits into what you're saying, is I'll think about what can I learn that's new from this person if I really just stop and don't become self-righteous and maybe there are some things that I haven't considered that I haven't really thought about or that I don't even have the information and maybe this particular person is going to give me more information. And when I do that, it, it makes it easier for me to sit and to listen and to be in the present and to not figure out what my next debating point is going to be. I find that helpful. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. That's perfect. I'm going to use that. (laughs) (laughs) You can put it in your next book. (laughs) Yes, yes. So you wrote the book, and and having finished the book, and you wrote it with your your partner, what, what did you learn about yourself after writing this book? I mean, obviously it has to have changed you because, I mean, there's so much information and puts you in a position where you have to be self-aware just to write the book. We have two minutes. I probably shouldn't have asked you this question now, but can you tell me in a minute or a minute and a half? Uh, um, well, I learned yeah. that I'm an author <laughs> and that I can <laughs> can do big things. You know, I confirmed that I can, you know, if I have a dream and I have a goal um, that I can through the tools that I've had, you know, that I coach people with, that um, I can do everything, anything I want in my life. And, and, and everybody, you can too. We all can. But, um, you know, Donna and I wrote this book because we were so stressed out and we were so upset. And we started by just talking with each other to help each other and use our coaching skill tools with each other. And I think what I've learned and what I've come back to is um, just trusting and validating again that the work that I do as a coach um, and that Donna does is so powerful. I know I'm sort of taking this in a little bit different direction, but the biggest thing I've learned is how much faith and and trust I have in the work that um, we do as coaches and how it's helped us get through this really difficult, difficult situation that um, is unlike any other we've faced in our lifetimes. A great experience, obviously, for you and for the rest of us, because now we have the book to help us. Um, We have to say goodbye. I've been talking to Kathy Hertz. She's the author of Beyond Resistance, Coping with the Stress of the Trump Era. And I assume you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere? Yes. And www.beyondresistancebook.com. Great. And you can Thanks download so much, the first Kathy. chapter for free. Thank you, oh, Catherine. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 